0: I want to start this morning by reading to you a really powerful testimony that I read uh, on the Gospel Coalition from a young man who was talking about the subject matter for today, which is the book of Jonah. Here's Here's what he wrote. He says, as a young man just converted to Christianity and boiling over with anger towards my stepfather, I spent a lot of time praying the Psalms. It wasn't hard to cast myself in the image of the unjust sufferer, echoing David's cries for vengeance upon my enemies. But at some point during all the vitriol, I read the book of Jonah. Now, here was a guy I could identify with. Who can fault a guy who doesn't want God to be gracious to his enemies? I get it, Jonah. I don't want God to dole out forgiveness like it's free either. But at some point during this difficult time in my life, my stepfather reconciled with my mother. Okay, fine, that's good. But then the guy had the nerve to apologize to me as well. No, I thought, he's not getting off that easy. This guy seriously damaged my soul. He doesn't get to just repent and move along. No way. This guy needs to suffer. God's righteous wrath should be poured out on him for what he's done. And that's when I remembered the ending to the book of Jonah. You know that pesky chapter four, where the Lord really gets at the heart of Jonah's problems by ordaining a plant to give Jonah shade, then destroying the plant with a worm? It's humorous, really, when you read the book and think about the gospel. Of course the Lord was right to feel compassion for the Ninevites, And of course, it's absurd for Jonah to be so angry about their repentance and the death of that plant. And of course, it's even more absurd that a man who had received such grace would angrily withhold it from another. And that's when it hit me. I had become the proverbial unforgiving servant. Having been forgiven so great a debt by my Savior, I was now demanding the payment of a few pennies from my stepfather. Yes, the Lord was gracious to give us the book of Jonah. I still identify with him sometimes because I'm still prone to be angry when I see injustice. But the great thing about it is that Jesus lovingly disciplines me and reminds me of the grace poured out on the cross. And in light of how great my sins are, how can I not forgive others? Powerful stuff. And maybe you, maybe you hear that and you resonate in some way. There's somebody in your life that's hurt you in that way grab your Bibles. Let's turn to the book of Jonah. It's in that minor prophet section, right? After Joel and Amos and Obadiah, three books that we've been in just recently. I want you to know as you turn there that the book of Jonah is not a morality tale. The lesson is not, let me repeat that, the lesson is not obey God or else he'll track you down and punish you And you might end up in the stomach of a whale. That's not the lesson. It's all too common in the church today to hear that type of lazy interpretation that doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. This is an incredibly rich story with layer upon layer of application for us. So we don't want to be lazy about it. Before we dive in, let me make a couple of uh, quick observations. Uh, This book is unique among all the prophets because it focuses more on the messenger than his message. That's absolutely unique. Usually it's not about the messenger, it's about the message, but Jonah in the story is the object lesson for us, so pay attention to that. And of course, God is the master teacher. He is going to use his chosen prophet as a tool to reveal to us the failings of our own hearts as we look at the heart of Jonah. So I'll say this morning, buckle up. We're going to learn a lot about Jonah's heart today, and some of it may cut really close to home. And you may see yourself a little bit in Jonah, and that's good, that's okay. Welcome that into your your heart and mind this morning. The lesson really has nothing to do with the fish either. I know we like to talk about the fish, it makes for a great kid's story, but it's not about the fish. It's worth saying up front that Jonah does have a lot of miraculous components in the story. And for that reason, many people, even people who claim to know Christ, have written it off as a tall tale of some kind, or they've said it's at best an allegorical fable. But the way it's written, we really don't have that option. It's delivered to us as historical narrative. So we have to realize that. We know that Jonah was a real person. He's mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel. We also know that Joppa and Nineveh were real cities. In fact, you can go there today. You can visit those cities. They've been unearthed, and you can see some of the archeological evidence that correspond with the time of Jonah. So these are real people and real things. And to top it off, Jesus himself, who, I don't have to remind you, is actually God in the flesh, he treats the story of Jonah as historical. And if he does, I suppose we should as well. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now, can a fish swallow a man whole? Absolutely. That's documented. That's that's happened. Big fish. There's, There's big, scary fish in the ocean. Did you know that? I don't like the open ocean. If you get to know me at all, you know that's like my greatest fear, the open ocean. I do not know what's down there. And it's super deep and there's big things, okay? So yes, there's plenty of documentation that a fish can swallow man whole. Are there massive fish like that in the Mediterranean Sea? Absolutely. Sperm whales, giant great whites, I mean, there's all kinds of massive fish in the Mediterranean Sea. Can a man live for three days in the stomach of a fish? That's the one that's challenging, right? We know there would be some air in the stomach of a fish, just as there's some air in our stomachs as well. But here's the thing we need to know. We need to approach the story of Jonah the same way we approach the rest of the Bible. Knowing that our God, the creator of all things, who just breathes things into existence, can and does intervene in the affairs of man and the affairs of the world in supernatural ways. In other words, he does miracles. You're looking at a whole bunch of them in this room this morning. So God is active in doing miracles. So if you ask the question, can a man die, be buried, and, raised, and be raised again on the third day, and you say yes, well, then we can look at the book of Jonah and read it literally, right? Because God does miracles. Amen? Good. One of the questions that's often asked about Jonah is this. Why is his work considered prophetic? If it's all historical narrative, why is he considered a prophet? It's a good question. There's 48 total verses in this book. 47 of them are historical narrative. Jonah preaches and prophesies one time in one verse. That's it. But there's a good reason for him being called a prophet because. That's exactly what he's called in in another part of the Bible, wholly unrelated to the book of Jonah. In fact, I'm going to put this verse on the screen. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 14, and it's the writer's intention in this verse to talk about King Jeroboam II, but look who's mentioned in the verse. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the king, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. So some of the things that we can know. So Jonah was a prophet. He's called a prophet right here. He served God during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. His father's name was Amittai. And he comes from a town in Galilee of all places, Gath Hefer, which is near the town of Nazareth. Now we touched on the reign of Jeroboam the second last week in our study, and so I'll put this back up. We've been looking at this timeline each and every Sunday. So above the arrows is the northern kingdom of Israel, below or is the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's these two great kings that show up right about the same time: Jeroboam the second in Israel and Uzziah, who we'll get to next Sunday in the southern kingdom. And you see these three prophets in pink all sort of lumped together in the same time period. We looked at Amos last week, Jonah today, Hosea next week. And by the way, that's my really official skull and crossbones. Uh, What does that mean? That means that's the death of the northern kingdom in 722. That's when the Assyrians are going to ride in and destroy the northern kingdom. Make sense? So we talked about how Jeroboam ushered in a time of great prosperity in Israel last week. This was a time when great luxury and great wealth was pouring into the land. And as we just read in 2 Kings, he was able to extend the borders of Israel uh, to a point not seen since the days of Solomon. I'm going to give you a bunch of maps today. It's going to be great. So we look at this map. So the the purple is, is Judah in the south. The green is Israel in the north. The blue dot is what? Always Jerusalem. So you know where we are. The red dots are the traditional boundaries of the land of Israel, Dan in the north and Beersheba in the south. So we see over and over in scripture, Israel is defined from Dan to Beersheba. Well, look at the red lines now. That's how the borders were expanded during this period of history. In the south, Uzziah was a mighty king, and he extends Judah all the way down to the Red Sea. And in the north, Jeroboam II is also a mighty king, and he extends the kingdom all the way up into Aramean territory captures the city of Damascus, and so this is a great time of prosperity in the land. Does that make sense? Good. So with all that is our background. Let's, uh, let's read through the highlights of the story of Jonah, and we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Look at verse 1 in your text. Everybody there? Jonah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, so there he is again, same guy, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah Jonah rose up and did the opposite. Actually, I added that. He did the opposite. this is one of the things that makes Jonah so unique. He's the only prophet we see in scripture scripture who gets the instruction from the Lord and disobeys it. In fact, he goes the opposite direction. What he should have done, I'm going to give you another map. We're going to expand the, here's the ancient Near East. Okay, so we're going to expand this quite a bit. The blue dot is still Jerusalem, okay? The red dot is Nineveh. That's the capital city of Assyria. And just for some geographical points, the green dot is Babylon. And that whole area, see the black lines? That's the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. That's what we call Mesopotamia, okay? So both, both, the, 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 both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, will eventually be conquered by these two people groups, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. Now, what should Jonah have done when he got this word from the Lord? See that yellow line? That's what he should have done. He should have gotten on his horse, burrow, feet, whatever it was, and head straight north and then to the east along what we call the Fertile Crescent, using the rivers and using the towns along the rivers as a way to survive and walk to the city of Nineveh. It's about a 600-mile trip, so nothing small. But the thing you have to see in this map is no boat required. No boat required. Has nothing to do with the ocean, with the sea at all. Okay? Now, let's talk about Nineveh. What do we know about Nineveh? Well, it's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire and one of the great cities of the ancient world. In fact, it was it had been about 1847, it was discovered in, near the, the town of Mosul in Iraq and it was unearthed, and they're still working on it even today. But one of the great cities of the ancient world. The Assyrians themselves were a vicious Semitic tribe who had a well-earned reputation for violence and for brutality, and it's one of the first empires that historians note used psychological terrorism as a strategy. What that means is that they they would do the most awful, wicked, brutal, cruel things to people they possibly could as a means of scaring the dickens out of everybody else. Dickens is a technical term. We have archeological inscriptions of kings, Assyrian kings, boasting in their cruelty. I mean, they literally picture it on their walls, impaling their victims, flaying them alive, hanging their skins on the, on the, on the walls of their enemy cities. Absolutely terrible things to the point where if you, were, if you had a fortified city and the Assyrian army was coming your direction. Chances are you just throw open the gates and say, come on in, rather than face that type of brutality. And that was exactly the way they saw their strategy. And of course, any nation in the 10th, 9th, or 8th century BCs who who, who lived in this region, lived under great fear under the shadow of this growing war machine in Assyria. And of course, that includes both uh, uh, Israel and Judah. What's shocking to the casual reader of the Bible is that God is going to use this violent brutal people as his rod of discipline against his people, Israel. That's really the hard thing to understand. And we get to Habakkuk, we'll get some explanation on that, but that's who God is going to use. Now Amos hinted at it last week. We looked at it last Sunday. He said to the Northern kingdom, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus. Next Sunday, we'll look at Hosea. He's going to become very specific. He says, Assyria will be your king because you've refused to return to me." So both Amos and Hosea point to Assyria, but Hosea is going to be very, very specific. Now before that happens in 722 BC, before Assyria sweeps into Israel and conquers Samaria, God declares that he's going to first send a prophet to Assyria, to Nineveh in particular, to warn them of impending judgment. And that's where Jonah comes into the story. Now understand a mission of salvation to Assyria would be an incredibly difficult assignment for a Hebrew prophet. We want to try to climb in people's sandals when we read the Bible, right? So I want you to try to understand why this would be so difficult for Jonah. Given the nature of uh, Assyria as an oppressor of Israel and a deadly enemy, some have described this as like calling a Jew to go and to, to prophesy in Germany in 1939. Think about that. How difficult that would be for Jonah to consider. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we try to put his sandals on. Look at verse three. So what did Jonah do? Verse three, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So you hear this repetitive language here. Okay back to the map. So let, so what are we talking about here? The blue dot again is Jerusalem. That yellow dot is where Jonah is from, up by Nazareth in Galilee. And he's going to come down to that white dot. That's the port city of Joppa. And that's where he is going to get on a boat. Where is Tarshish? We don't really know. Scholars don't know. Some people think it was another name for Carthage, which was to the west, but on the North African coast. Some people believe it's all the way to Spain, on the west coast of Spain, as far as you could possibly sail, about 2,500 miles to the west. But we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Jonah got on a boat and he went the opposite direction of Nineveh. So here you go. Here's our little whale. Should have followed the yellow line, didn't. Got on a boat, red line, sailed that direction west, ran into a fish. Let's pray. No. Just kidding. (laughs) I I couldn't help that. Okay. Notice that twice here in verse three, we're told that Jonah's goal was to flee the presence of the Lord. How many of you guys think that sounds crazy? It does. For a man who, who knows Yahweh and knows the scripture, this is laughable. There is no place that you can flee to to escape the presence of God. So the best way to understand the language here is this. By fleeing west, Jonah was basically saying to God, No, thank you, Lord, for this assignment. I resign. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I'm I'm going that way. Thanks anyway. He's resigning. So while the omnipresent God would certainly be in Nineveh dealing with his people there, Jonah was determined not to be there. And I think he thinks to himself, if I just vacate the area, God might leave me alone. Ah, Forget that guy. He's unfaithful. Let him go. I'll find somebody else to send to Nineveh. Was he right? No, Jonah judges incorrectly. He underestimates the tenacity of Yahweh to accomplish his will in the way he sovereignly chooses. So we all know the story. God hurls this great storm in Jonah's path, and it's a storm that is so severe that it terrifies the professional sailors on the ship. It threatens to break up the ship and send them all to a watery death. And so how do these, these professional sailors, who had obviously been in storms before. What do they do? They begin to throw all the cargo overboard to lighten the ship, and they begin each crying out to their gods. Okay? A lot of people think these may have been Phoenician uh, sailors. So they're crying out to their pagan gods, their false gods, for deliverance, but it's not working. And while they're frantically doing all this, and you can sort of picture the chaos on board, what is Jonah doing? He's sleeping. He's down below in the hold, and he is sleeping like a baby. And understandably, this triggers the captain of the ship. So he runs down into the hold. He confronts Jonah. He shakes him awake, and he yells at him, what are you doing? Get up and call on your God. Nobody else's God is doing anything. Maybe yours will. Call on your God. Now, you have to see the irony in that, right? Here's a pagan ship captain who's been praying, who is now having to exhort God's prophet to pray. It's really backwards, isn't it? By the way, Jonah never does pray while he's on the ship. Never prays at all. And then you start to think about it, and you're like, well, who can blame him? Think about your own prayer life. When you are running away from God and towards sin, do you want to talk to God? No, this is one of those moments where we say, I- I'm going to flee from the presence of God. Maybe he won't, we deceive ourselves, maybe he won't see me over here, but the last thing I'm going to do is pray to him right now because I want my sin. So the storm continues and it gets worse. And again, you have to try to imagine the intensity of the waves hitting the hull of the ship and the sound of of the rain and and the wind. You you barely hear each other talk, let alone think on the ship. It's just chaos that's going on here. And these sailors, they're sure this is the end of their lives. Nobody's prayers are working. And so they do what I can, I guess we would call a pagan Hail Mary. They. They cast lots to figure out who the problem is. It's interesting that they see this as a religious matter, isn't it, these pagan sailors? They see that there's some divine force behind this. This is such a unique storm. So they cast lots, and guess what happens? God sovereignly makes sure the lot falls on Jonah. And so the jig is up. Jonah's caught, and my guess is he wasn't surprised. He's like, I knew this was gonna happen. Because Jonah understands the sovereignty of God. So he knows it's going to happen. Now, it's a wonder if I was one of those sailors, in that moment, I'd have said, grab him, get him out. Just throw him overboard. He's the problem. But instead, they they decide to interrogate Jonah in this moment. They swamp him with questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? Who do you worship? And Jonah, the way that I think the story reads, he gives like bare minimum answers. He's like a child that got caught lying. He says, you know how you guys are your parents, you know, they don't, they don't want to give up a lot of information. So he says, fine, I'm a Hebrew. That's me. I fear Yahweh. He's the God of the land of the sea, so this is what happens. <laughs> right? That's basically what he says. And, and, the, and the sailors, because of how weird Jonah's been acting, and because he answers these questions like that, it dawns on them, this guy's running from his God. He's the cause of all this, and he's put our life in danger rightfully so. And so they're disgusted by Jonah. And they literally say to him, how could you do this? Friends, when pagans are shocked by the behavior of God's people, it's to our shame, isn't it? May that never be said of anybody here in our church family, that our, our behavior, our sin is so grievous and so insensitive and so callous that even pagans are shocked by us. But that's what's going on here. The sailor's next question then is a logical one, okay, you're the problem, tell us how to fix this. How do we make the storm stop? And, and Jonah, at this point, you get a sense that he, he's resigned to his fate. He says, well, pick me up, throw me overboard, and the storm will end. Now, some people, when they read this, they, they see Jonah repenting here. I disagree completely. Some people say, well, he's offering himself as a guilt sacrifice in order to save everybody else. I disagree. I hear in Jonah's voice a feeling that we're going to see several other times in the story. He just wants to die. He would rather die than live in a a miserable condition. Just end it, he says. Just get me out of here. I resign myself to this whole fate. But once again, irony alert the pagan sailors display a higher sense of virtue than God's prophet. They're not willing to just throw him overboard, again, to our shame as God's people, right? And so at the risk of their own lives, they begin rowing with all their strength to try to get to shore. Maybe they can get close enough to drop him off, but that's super dangerous. The last place you want to be in a storm is near reefs and rocks. And of course, again, God is sovereign, so he frustrates their efforts, and the storm gets worse. And so finally, finally, the sailors, they've got no choice. They, they grab Jonah and they throw him overboard. But important note, before they do that, they pray. And they don't pray to their gods anymore. They pray to Yahweh. You'll find it in verse 14 of chapter 1. They pray, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Notice how far these pagans have come now during this storm. They have forsaken their false gods. Now they're calling on the one true God. They've prayed to him and they've acknowledged his sovereignty. Amazing stuff. The pagans seem to have become believers and God's prophet is still being rebellious. Everything is upside down in the story. But the amazing thing is in in trying to avoid preaching to the Ninevites, what has Jonah unwittingly done? He's revealed Yahweh to these pagan sailors. Not because that's what he wanted to do, but they saw Yahweh through his sin. Amazing stuff. And just as Jonah predicted, they throw him into the sea, and and the storm stops, and, and this solidified the faith of the sailors. Verse 16 says, now they feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. So this wasn't some trite little, I want to be saved, this is no. We worship you, Lord. We recognize your sovereignty, and we make vows to follow you. So this is faith in action. This is an amazing story. And then chapter 1 ends with this very short statement about the fish. This is why the fish is not the main part of the story. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, it's interesting to think about what was going through Jonah's mind at this point, right? He's... uh, He's trying to grasp what's happening to him in, in the midst of all this chaos. He sinks below the surface. He, he's sure he's gonna drown at this point. And in his last conscious moment, he cries out to God that he might be delivered from drowning. And suddenly, and this is the way I picture it because it's not in the text, but suddenly imagine everything goes black and you get this sense of motion being carried along and this feeling of being squeezed into a chamber of some kind. Imagine the horror. And as he regains his consciousness, imagine he's feeling the stomach lining of the fish pressing up against him. He's feeling the irritation of the acid juices that are down there. He's maybe sensing the flip-flopping of other fish that the big fish has swallowed in the chamber with him, and the smell of it all, you can imagine, and maybe worst of all, the darkness of it, terrifying. But in time, he must have realized that, that God was had done this, this was not an everyday occurrence, that The fish really wasn't his means of his death, but means of his deliverance that God had indeed heard his cry and saved him from drowning. But now what? Thank you, Lord, for this, I guess. Right? I mean, imagine, I guess I'm thankful for this, but what do I do? Well, he's out of options. So what does Jonah do? He finally prays. Good job, Jonah. Now, we don't have time to read through chapter two. I want you to read it on your own time. This is sometimes referred to as Jonah's Psalm, but here's my take on it. And and by the way, not everybody agrees with this take. I think Jonah's prayer is a sham. Actually, I take that back. It's not a sham. It's a typical prayer of a self-absorbed man who's become really good at piling religious platitudes on top of his own self-righteousness. How's that? And sometimes that describes my prayers. It may be yours. We've become really good at doing that, right? Uh, of, of, of mouthing words to God, of, of maybe even using some biblical language to make it sound flowery and good, but it's not really filled with uh, repentance and holiness. But we want it to sound good, so we pile stuff on. I think that's what's going on here. At first glance, his psalm, if you want to call it that, has the appearance of piety. There's psalm-like language in it for sure. But it's like a one-inch layer of snowfall on a garbage dump. It looks nice on the outside until you start stirring it around, and then it smells. That's the best way I can can think of it. Most of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 is focused on his woes, how difficult all this has been on him. God's character is barely mentioned, and when he does allude to the attribute of God's sovereignty, it almost looks as if he's blaming God for his current situation. Scary. He also seems to credit himself for somehow motivating God to rescue him. Over and over again, he talks about, well, I did this and I did that. I called out in my distress. I cried for help. While I was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And shockingly, rather than taking note of how the pagan sailors treated him with kindness and how they professed faith in Yahweh, he goes on to make a crack about how those. Those heathens seek after idols, but not me, I'm a Hebrew, I don't do that. His sense of superiority comes out, and he talks about, well, when I'm rescued from this, I'll go back to Jerusalem and I'll bring a sacrifice to Yahweh. He would, do, he would do, give anything to be delivered from this fish and go back to Jerusalem, but guess what? There's no mention anywhere that he has any intention of going to Nineveh. No, I just want to get back to Jerusalem so I can make sacrifices in your temple. Bottom line is this, there is so much in this moment that Jonah has to confess to God and to repent of, but there's no confession here in chapter two. There's no repentance that I can see. In fact, this is why I had Grant read as we started the service this morning from Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 is so rich, you want to to see what repentance looks and sounds like in a prayer? Listen again to David. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, Lord, and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Folks, that is taking responsibility for your sin. That is repentance, not what Jonah gives us in his psalm. There is no evidence of a broken or contrite heart in chapter 2. At best, it's an expression of gratitude that God saved him from drowning. That's about all I can say about it. And then we come to the very last verse, verse 10 in chapter 2. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. By the way, there was other words that could have been used there, but he uses vomited. I think that's, I think that's intended. God's not happy with his prayer, so he has him vomited out onto the dry land. And so chapter 3 then opens, and I love God's, uh, his, he's just so... Um, Subtle, in his instructions, you know. I, if you and I are God, I'd have I said, "Okay, right." Have you learned your lesson, Jonah? All God says is, "Arise and go to Nineveh." <laughs> just repeats his instruction, and this time Jonah obeys. I mean, he didn't have much of a choice, right? And it's pretty clear as the story unfolds that he's not learned his lesson. He's still not repentant. He's still not happy about the mission. He arrives in Nineveh, and he strides through the city, pronouncing God's judgment. Verse 4 in chapter 3, what's the message? Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty days you've got before Yahweh destroys you. But look at the shock in verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. The people of Nineveh heard the message, and they believed they believed in the God of Jonah, just like the sailors in chapter 1. They heard the message of God's divine judgment, and they took it seriously. Not only did they believe that Yahweh was real, they, it says they took practical steps to show him they didn't want to be destroyed. The entire city, including the king, put on sackcloth, and they, they sit, on, sit in ashes, this ancient sign of grief. And they exhort one another to turn away from their wickedness and the violence that had marked their culture. And verse 10 gives us the results. When God saw their deeds, by the way, not when he heard their words from their lips, when he saw their deeds, he saw their faith in action, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Okay, we saw some of this last week, right, with, with, uh, with Amos. God may relent. God may relent. If we repent, God may relent. Let's repent. Real choice. God gave the Israelites in Amos' day real choice, right? God gave the Ninevites a real choice here, repent or be destroyed. And God relented. Now, how that fits in with sovereignty, we can talk about that. Because God knows the beginning from the end. He's still sovereign over all that. It's not that God changed. But the text says that he saw their deeds and he turned away from this calamity. Praise the Lord, right? That's good. Are we happy about that, by the way? Or are we like Jonah? No. Bring it down. No. We're pleased with that. So this raises two of the most debated questions in the entire Old Testament canon. I'm going to put them on the screen. Number one, what caused the Ninevites to respond so well to Jonah's preaching? And number two, was their response true repentance and saving faith, or was it just a temporary action to the threat of reaction, to the threat of judgment. Guess what? We're not given the answers. Doesn't that frustrate you? Drives me crazy. <laughs> now, I don't want to speculate too much, but there's a couple things that we can say about this. Regarding the first question, God was obviously at work in the hearts of the Ninevites even before Jonah got there. Newsflash nothing Jonah said saved anyone, God saves. Just as when I get up here and I might say something about the gospel, my words don't save anyone. My words aren't going to transform you. Only God using the words of his servants is doesn't anything ever happened. So God was at work. So if anybody was saved in Nineveh, it was because of God's grace, amen? That's the first thing we can say. Now there's some interesting historical details that God might've harnessed for his use that, that might've helped the Assyrians respond to Jonah's words. For example, we know that there was a pagan God in the ancient Near East called Dagon, okay? And he was a fish man. In fact, we have lots of inscriptions and pictures of him all over the ancient Near East. He's mentioned several times in the Bible in relation to the Philistines. And when we dug up Nineveh, guess what we found? All kinds of images of the fish god. So if people witnessed this fish vomiting Jonah onto the coastline somewhere in Phoenicia or somewhere. And then they... Followed him to Nineveh You can imagine people would have been pretty blown away by this This guy just came back from the dead That's the way they would have seen it And and it's possible that the Ninevites said Well this is the Hebrew embodiment of Dagon So that would have gotten their attention And then maybe God used that in some way To bring them to a place of saving faith To understand who he was Not Dagon, but who he was But use that to highlight the ministry of Jonah We don't know, but that's a possibility Now, second question, was their response true in saving? I think there's evidence that points to both possibilities in that question. First, some would say, no, what we see here is, the best we can say is it's social reform. They heard the message of destruction, and they said, well, we should turn from our wicked ways. Let's stop killing each other. That's an idea, right? Let's treat each other better, and let's put on the outward appearance of... Of repentance and you know, sackcloth and ash, and, and God will relent. But some people will point out a couple things that aren't mentioned in the text. They don't call on the covenant name of Yahweh. They call on Elohim, the more general term for God. There is no promise of, of, of setting aside their idols, turning away from idols. And there's no mention of moving towards circumcision to come into the covenant. So some would say, no, there, there, there's really no saving faith here. There was just a reaction. But on the other hand, we have to look at what Jesus says in Matthew 12. What he says is pretty interesting when he talks to the scribes and Pharisees. He says to them, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Huh. So with all that said, I think it's appropriate to say, number one, we can't be sure because we're not God. Amen and amen. But two, I would take, I think, the the practical and rational perspective on this and try to compare it to to even a modern-day situation and say, you know what, some in Nineveh probably were going through the motions and they really didn't trust in Yahweh and they weren't saved, and some were probably very sincere in worshiping Yahweh, and they were saved. So all responded in some way, but maybe only a part of the populace was actually saved. And it's those sincere believers in Nineveh that will rise up at the last generation and judge the hypocritical Pharisees and scribes. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Everything else, you'll have to figure out for yourself. No, I mean, really, we want to be careful not to speculate too much and drag things that aren't out of the text. But those are some possibilities for you to, to meditate on. Now, wouldn't it be great if the book ended now? Chapter three, done And on a high note, Nineveh responds, Jonah goes back, yay, but then comes the plot twist. Everything that's been written up to this point sets the context for what we need to learn about Jonah's heart and what we need to learn about our own hearts. Had Jonah been any other prophet in the history of Israel, he would have been absolutely stoked about the the reaction of the Ninevites. He would have been so excited that God had done this amazing work. But Jonah surprises us and shocks us once again. Chapter 4, verse 1 says that he was displeased by the reaction of the Ninevites. In fact, it angered him. There's going to be a lot of talk about anger in chapter 4, and some of us, we struggle with anger. So it's important to look at what it was that was causing Jonah to be so angry. His prayer in verses 2 and 3 in chapter 4 is stunning. Let me give you Jeff's paraphrase. I knew you would do this, Lord. I knew it because you're slow to anger and compassionate. I had a feeling that you would relent and you would not destroy these awful people. That's why I got on the boat in the first place. I don't want any part of this. And you dragged me back here. (laughs) It's hard for us to imagine, but Jonah was angry that God would be merciful to a people group. And then he says, I'm so upset about this that death sounds like a better option to me than life. This guy is a drama queen. He really is. Oh, this is so awful. I would rather die. Here he is, just like in the boat. Just throw me overboard. Give me a quick end. And in response, verse 4 of chapter 4, God asks the first in a series of really important probing questions. He says, Jonah Do you have any good reason to be so angry? No answer. No answer from Jonah. So Jonah's having none of this, and he has no desire to stay in the city with these filthy Gentiles. So apparently goes up outside the city walls. He finds a hill overlooking Nineveh, and he builds himself a little shelter. And verse 5 says his plan was to see what would happen. And there's still a a glimmer of hope that God is going to do what Jonah would like to see happen rain down fire and brimstone and destroy everybody in the city, by the way, even those that apparently had put their faith in Yahweh, yeah, innocent, guilty, animals, doesn't matter, children, destroy them all. That's what he wants to see, a front row seat to destruction. But in the meantime, the heat had become a nuisance for Jonah. Think about summertime in the desert of Iraq. The heat is a problem. And so God attended to Jonah by, by giving him something and, and teaching him a life lesson. First, God located this plant by Jonah's little shelter, and he supernaturally causes it to grow at an accelerated rate such that it provides shade over him, right? How many of you guys, you, you've been, it's August in Santa Clarita. It's 112, and you're driving into Home Depot or the mall or something, and there's a parking spot under a tree. Whew. Give me some, I mean, it's like, woo! give me a little shade, man. I mean, it's tough out here, but if I just get that parking spot and my car doesn't heat up to 200 degrees, amen and amen. That's what Jonah wants here. And for the first time in the whole story, the text says he's happy. Oh, yay, Jonah. He's happy. Verse six says, Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but God has a plan here. And so his happiness is short-lived. On the next day, God supernaturally causes a worm to come and destroy the plant. Bummer. And then to make it worse, God appoints a, a scorching wind to come out of the east and to hit Jonah right in the face and make him even more miserable. More drama, right? Probing question number two then comes from God. Hey, Jonah, do you really have a good reason to be angry about that plant? And this time, in no uncertain terms, Jonah snaps back at God with attitude, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. Drama queen. And so, before we finish with the final two verses, which are really the key, let me just remind you of who has been directing this entire story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the lot fell on Jonah, the Lord appointed the fish. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The Lord appointed a plant. The Lord appointed a worm. The Lord appointed a scorching east wind. He's been driving this entire story, and Jonah has not handled it well. What do we learn? God has more ways of confronting us than we have ways of evading his presence. And he'll continue to do that. What was the big theme from last Sunday? God is always working to get our attention. And when we go into a pity party like this, when we get angry about things like this, God has innumerable ways to get our attention. And that's what we see here in Jonah. He has the final word here, verses 10 and 11. He directs Jonah to the heart of the matter here in verses 10 and 11. You had compassion on the plant, Jonah, for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight. So, in other words, Jonah, you weep over a plant that you didn't create, you didn't cause to grow, and it lived all of one day. And you will weep over that. And here's the contrast, verse 11. God says, And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? who do not know the difference between their right and left hand are spiritually clueless as well as many animals. God says, Joni, you had compassion for the plant. Here's why. Because it made you happy. That's all. You don't care about the plant. It made you happy. That's why you had compassion. Your compassion was self-centered. It wasn't for the plant. So set aside the plant for now and look down again at the people in Nineveh. Look at them. I made those people in my image, God says. I have sovereignly managed their affairs. Nineveh is an ancient city filled with generations of spiritually blind people who need to be saved. And you want to talk about a one-day-old plant. No, Jonah, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the prophecy ends. Awkward. Right? Is the most awkward ending. In the Bible. It ends right there, right? But here's what we need to know the book was not designed to make us feel good. This book was not designed to make us feel all warm and fuzzy. It's designed to unsettle us just a bit. As we look at how messed up Jonah's heart is, it begins to cause us to look at ourselves and we're left hanging. We're left hopefully examining our own hearts and saying, oh man, do I see some of this in me? That's good. So some observations. I think the best way to view Jonah is to see him as a graphic representation of the nation of Israel in his day. God has a way of doing this. He does it with Jeremiah. He'll do it with Hosea next week. People living out graphic symbolism of greater things. And so Jonah represents Israel, the stubbornness, the hypocrisy, the hardness of heart. Jonah disobeyed God's command just as the nation of Israel was disobeying God's law. Jonah refused to carry out the task of preaching to the Gentiles, just as the nation of Israel had failed to be a light, Yahweh's light, in the region. Jonah called on God for deliverance without repenting, just as Israel had been doing for centuries. Jonah had all the outward trappings of righteousness, but no holiness of mind or of heart, just like Israel's worship had become hollow. He represents so much of what's wrong in the northern kingdom of Israel. And and this truth always comes as a shock to people because we, we can't really imagine this is true, but Jonah's core problem is with God's grace. His core problem is grace. Who has a problem with grace, you ask? And the answer is people who think they deserve God's favor. People who think they deserve God's favor. Do not like grace because it might be given to somebody other than themselves who didn't earn it. Jonah has an idea of what God ought to do. He wants to to make God in his own image. He wants a God who will operate on a very simple formula. Destroy those that Jonah calls wicked and bless those that Jonah says are worthy. Some people are worthy of being saved. Everybody else deserves destruction. And that's the mindset that causes him to be so angry throughout this story, because God doesn't play by his rules. God is not living out what he wants God to be. God is not following his simple formula. That's why he's angry. How, Jonah thinks, can God be merciful to these violent Assyrians while at the same time putting me, a Hebrew, through such misery? He's utterly blind to his own disobedience. And pride. And this, was, this is what God warned Israel about. Remember way back in Deuteronomy 8 and 9, Israelites are about to go cross the Jordan into the promised land. And God says, listen, you're going to be tempted once you get there and I prosper you, you're going to be tempted to think you deserve it. You're going to be tempted to think, well, I've earned these blessings. It's all grace, but you're going to think, you're going to be tempted to say, look at how great we are. Ta-da. Ta-da, here's Jonah, centuries later, personifying that very mindset. How can a preacher protest the gift of mercy? Only by believing that God's blessings had to be earned. How can a prophet protest when God takes away his provision of a silly plant? Only by supposing that he deserved the plant in the first place and that God owes him comfort. We read the story and we see grace everywhere, right? Grace in God's calling, grace in the sailor's prayer, grace in God appointing the fish to save Jonah, grace in God's provision of the plant, grace from beginning to end. But Jonah refuses to admit that any of that grace was free. He believes he's earned it. He believes it's owed to him because of who he is. That's the bottom line. He's filled with self-righteousness. He believes he deserves it all. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us then that when we close the Old Testament and we open the New Testament and we read about the religious leaders of Israel during the days of Christ, they're just like Jonah. The same smug self-righteousness, the same hypocrisy 800 years later is still present in Jerusalem. Remember the, the Pharisees and the scribes? They were meticulous about all the details and the forms of their religion, all the while completely ignoring the weightier matters of the law, which were? Two of them, justice and mercy. I'll tithe the dill and the mint and all that stuff. I just don't care about mercy. That's the accusation against them from Jesus. They protested the fact that Jesus spent so much time with sinners like these Ninevites rather than cozying up to them. Why? Because they felt like they deserved Jesus' attention they were the ones. They were the worthy ones. And you're hanging out with the unworthy people that deserve to be destroyed. They're the same as Jonah. Hear this too, last one. Jonah is a supremacist and a hyper-nationalist, meaning he believed his bloodline and his tribe and his culture and his nation were supreme over everybody else. He put his love of country and national interest before others need to hear God's truth and be saved. This is another reason why he rejects grace, because grace calls his belief in supremacy into question. If other people are extended grace, well, wait, is God trying to say they're as good as me? That can't be. I'm a Hebrew. What could make a clansman more angry than to be sent to a black community to preach God's grace? What could could make a Nazi more angry than to have to go preach the gospel in a Jewish ghetto? Not those people. I don't want them saved. What could make a nationalistic American angrier than to have to bear the news of forgiveness in a place like Syria or Iran or in Palestinian territory? So I would say this to us as Americans, friends, beware of unchecked nationalism. Be careful here. I'm not saying you can't be patriotic. I'm not saying you can't love your country. I'm not, I'm not saying you can't say, well, I think our, the system of free markets and, and the Bill of Rights and all these things we have aren't the best system that human beings have come up with. I'm not saying you can't do that. All I'm saying is don't let your Americanism become more fundamental to who you are than your identity in Christ. Make sense? Don't make it more important to you than sharing the gospel with lost people in other nations, other people groups who maybe you can't identify with or don't understand or they're just different from you so you're a little afraid of it. Don't let your Americanism get in the way. So is it possible to see a little bit of Jonah in ourselves? Sure. We can be super orthodox in our beliefs, we can know our Bibles well, and we can still end up taking God's grace for granted. Happens all the time. Happens in my life until I get shook. It's a good thing. If we're not careful, we can slip into a place where we begin to think that our sin isn't that big of a deal, that we deserve to be forgiven. We deserve it. We can also find ourselves seeking comfort and prosperity above everything else and then becoming angry when God doesn't give it to us in the way we want it. This is fundamentally American, isn't it? I deserve prosperity. I deserve comfort. We think we deserve good things, and then we blame God if he doesn't give them to us. Well, everybody else is getting this stuff. Why aren't I? I'll blame God. He did this to me. We judge someone else to be unworthy of happiness, and we're angry that God blessed them and not us. They're not worthy of happiness. They're awful people. Look at me. I'm great. Why aren't I being blessed? It's dangerous stuff, isn't it? And if something's taken away from us, we begin to question the goodness of God. We begin to question whether God has the right to remove it. Why? Because once again, we've come to the place where, well, I'm a Christian. I'm owed happiness. I'm owed comfort. I'm owed a pain free life. Hmm, dangerous stuff. Remember the testimony I read at the very beginning of the message? The guy, he said, that guy doesn't. Just get to repent and be forgiven. He owes me more than that. He deserves to suffer. Is it possible that we who have received so much grace, who sing about the cross and our unworthiness, might actually, in reality, in our hearts desire to withhold grace from another person or another people group? Because of our sin. Man, there's so many subtle dangers in the book of Jonah that we should take note of. By the way, it's been pretty negative so far, but how about this? Grace is amazing. How about that? How about the fact that, that if we get our head screwed on right and our theology right about what grace is and how unworthy and undeserving we are, how incredible and joyful it is to praise God for all of So yeah, there's a a negative side on this. There's There's all these subtle threats that we need to pay attention to. And we ought to have the courage, by the way, the courage to talk to somebody else about this, to maybe wrestle through it with a trusted friend, to go into our prayer closet and say, Lord, will you show me if any of this is in my heart? Have the courage to do that. Have the courage to do that. But then come out and say, man, God straightened me out and his grace is amazing. Amen? Come back next week. We'll talk about Hosea. Let's pray.